0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. If someone was to ask, what does an architect do? a lot of people would respond, architects make buildings. To a degree, that's true, but it would be more accurate to say, architects design buildings and builders turn a design into the real thing. If it weren't for builders, there wouldn't be much built architecture at all. Over the next four episodes, we're going to be talking to built environment professionals about the relationship between architects and the people who make the designs a reality and what makes this fundamental collaboration successful. Our guests in this episode are architects Josh Crossan and Sarah Lindsay, who are the directors of LXN Architects based in Hobart, Tasmania. Josh and Sarah share their experiences of working closely with building companies, the importance of mutual respect when negotiating with builders, and the element of trust in a project team. Let's jump in. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah and Josh from LXN Architects in Hobart for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? Good, really, thanks.
1: Really good, Dan. Really good, thanks.
0: Great. Okay, well, we're going to be talking about um, the relationship between architects and builders, and you guys have both had quite an interesting journey to where you are now. And, uh, yeah, so first of all, I'd love to hear about uh, what you did before you started LXN Architects uh, because you both had quite different experiences before you got started. Prior to
2: university, I I personally, I finished school and and started my Carpentry apprenticeship in Hobart, Tasmania, at a time where I was probably a little bit lost. I'd achieved enrolment at UTAS but deferred it. Um, thought that, you know, my father had been in the industry and there wasn't a great respect for architects or that part of our industry. And thought that really I should be a hands on on the tools, bit more respect, bit more of a bloke. And uh, my first winter in Tasmania, working with various builders, I quickly realised that maybe I'd be better to a warm office, um, <laughs> lattes, <laughs> etc. Um, so I quickly re-enrolled in university and a year later I ended up at UTAS. We graduated in 2008 um, when the GSC hit. And unfortunately, all we saw were our previous friends coming from the mainland back to Tasmania without jobs. So we were put in a position where we were either told to go and pour a beer in a pub or work out how we were going to move forward. So we started a little design practice, just building designers out of Launceston, which was really difficult. It was hard to make ends meet. And that's what small business is when you start out. We were a very young practice. We didn't have fantastic skills, but we knew really what we wanted to try and achieve. But an opportunity arose 18 months, two years later, to go and work with a principal contractor up in Mackay for an eight-week contract. That eight-week contract turned into a six-year job flying around Australia as a design manager for a top-tier two construction company. The lessons learnt with that is that the commercial industry, construction industry is very fast-paced and after six years, I suppose there was a bit of burnout wanting to have a home instead of travelling week on week around Australia, you know, the Pilbara, Perth, Melbourne, Brisbane, Gold Coast, and when you're young, the first six months of flying around Australia living out of hotels is fantastic and then all of a sudden you realise actually, you know, I'd probably just like to maybe just go back home where i got friends, family. And so then came back to Tasmania to start LXM with Sarah.
1: I think the thing that Josh failed to mention is that just when he left Longceston is when we just landed our first decent-sized project. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, that meant that I had to very quickly pick up that little business and we made a decision that I wouldn't. we wouldn't take on any staff. I would just try and deliver that project, really. It was at the point where it was largely documented. I think Josh was doing a fair bit of detailing of an evening and sending drawings back to me, but I did the contract admin on that little commercial project. And then by the time that had been delivered, Josh was kind of based somewhat out of Perth so I actually went over there caught up with him again and started working for CODA which was an amazing experience because I then went from doing work immediately past on my own to working with a relatively big team and doing some pretty exciting commercial and health projects and so that was a great experience a really great work culture in that practice and here yeah, I sort of set myself on a more traditional pathway to getting registered. And then, yeah, we came back to Hobart to start LXN.
0: Yeah, well, it sounds like that was a really fantastic experience that you got to see the other side of architecture, you know, the actual, Josh, for you, on the actual building side and that coordination side that, that large-scale builders have to go through and Sarah also going through this project on your own without the safety net sort of just going for it. Um, What does that, what did that mean for you guys in terms of how you started to, to see architecture and the process of making architecture?
1: I think it very much reminds you that you don't work in a silo. Architects are just part of the process. And although we're a huge part of that service delivery, ultimately it is a massive collaboration. I think I was shocked to realise how little respect we had. Josh probably experienced that a lot quicker with his you know, school days experience. But, yeah, I was a little bit shocked to realise that quite often we're treated as the outsider when we're so integral to getting a building out of the ground. And so I think you team that kind of epiphany with Josh's technical and practical experience and you sort of go, okay, well, there's got to be a way to do this where you are respected and it is a collaboration and we all work together
2: for a common goal. It's difficult to try and summarise, but there's scenarios when you're with a principal contractor and the architect is highly regarded and there's other projects that are purely just commercial, might just be a shed, might just be a a really quick shopping centre. And architects or practices don't seem to have the respect that they deserve, because it will most likely be delivered under a design and construct contract, which have you know highly modified contracts by very skilled lawyers. Um, so the builder is is working to extremely tight timeframes, typically, or they were when. I was in that industry. And the pressure that that then puts on the output from practices, Mm, the
1: whole consultant
2: team, all consultants, is incredibly fast. That you're trying to turn around a whole project under eight weeks Mm. that still can be very complex with all the approval processes Mm. and of course there's going to be holes in coordination and I think that's the hardest part is that Mm. a project manager, a construction manager, a principal contractor, they understand that but at the end of the day they still need to deliver what they've promised under a contract Mm. and that diminishes some of the respect because all of a sudden the builder thinks less of us because we're not able to coordinate everything within a very short period of time. I think
1: also too it becomes a bit of a blame game and there isn't really that communication. So therefore there isn't that respect. You know, it's not a conversation about everybody saying, oh, we're all being screwed over by this deadline. This is what we can achieve. Let's stage the package or let's do this or let's actually collaborate on how to get this over the line in a way that's manageable and where it's actually going to be a decent set of documents. There is no communication. And I don't know whether as an architect, as a design manager, obviously you fit that role extremely well because it's basically our day job, right, project managing consultant teams. But you almost feel conflicted.
2: <laughs> so so therefore, coming back to this question about the relationship between the architect and the builder, in Tasmania, we're in a really lucky position where design and construct isn't prevalent. It's at its infancy. There's... Half the industry are aware of it, have done it, some just don't go near it, Mm -hmm. which means that because of our experience we're able to help educate the builder. So trying to build relationships with some builders that we work with under a design and construct model, there's a level of trust that we've built up over previous projects Mm -hmm. which allows them to come to us early Mm -hmm. and say this is our program. This is our client. This This is our client. How much time and what's the right team? Yeah. Instead of yeah. just submitting a, a price to deliver just architecture without mm. all the other specialist consultants and knowing who they are, we're now in a position where we can say we think this is the right team for this project mm. because some of the projects we're seeing that are going under a design and construct method where the principal builder and the architect really need to have a good relationship are high-end architectural projects. Mm.
1: I think that there is a way, Tassie is probably in a very unique position to be able to take the best of what D&C can offer and, and as Josh says, educate those contractors so that we don't end up in those sticky situations where there's just so much compromise or you're frozen out of the discussions with the client or I think that there are some positive ways to approach it as a delivery method that can be attractive for the market.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like, you know, especially on those larger projects and the more commercial projects where that's advantageous to use a DNC contract, your experience in actually being on that side, that must be a really good position to be in as opposed to just being told where you should fit in.
1: Yeah. And you don't go into it with the trepidation and the kind of fear and dismay that you sometimes hear people approaching design and construct contracts with where you're maybe novated and you're you're terrified of what the outcome's going to be and the way that you're going to be treated by the contractor and the way your client's going to be treated you can turn that completely around and actually have quite a lot of power in that position
2: there's still the role where the respect Yeah. yeah there's still the role where the architect given the opportunity really needs to try and educate the principal contractor and the builder as well about that relationship as well trying to move
0: forward So I think that's a really wonderful thing about your experience where you were actually on the ground seeing what people were doing and also actually doing what the builders need to do on that side. And it seems like, you know, also like the traditional architect position that used to happen where you were on site, actually working over details. You guys have been able to go through that as well on some of your projects, especially on some of your alts and ads. Uh, You did a a project for one of your clients, John and Lucy. It seems like on that project you were extremely Hands on in, in that project. Can you tell us a little bit about that project.
2: This was a really collaborative project that we had with some clients who were relocating back to home, having done their sabbatical on um, the on Big the Island. on the Big Island. <laughs> <laughs> they had purchased a, a property in Hobart five years previously and had just rented it out. The builder was actually um, a previous. Graduate of architecture, had practiced in WA, had decided to move over to construction because he just loves being outside. Highly respects architects and respects them in the way that also he tries to educate his clients about why they should be involved in a project, which is fantastic for us. And then the eye, of, you know, the detail that they're able to bring across to the project is fantastic as well. But unlike every builder, there needs to be somebody with the vision about how all the pieces click together mm. for an in design intent and the initial way of potentially putting those elements together. Now, whether that's the final outcome or not, it, it starts that conversation and that collaboration process. And I think that that's what we really had at John and Lucy's project with this builder and and clients that really wanted a good outcome as well. We were able to negotiate a contract with a builder um, for a cost plus project which everything seems in Hobart at the moment seems to be going towards a cost plus because of the rising material prices I think there's a lot of risk for lump sum Mm. the risk being both ways I think there's risk for the client because the builder will put such a large contingency in their price Um, and then the opposite way is that The risk is to the builder because they potentially lose so much money because of material price rises.
1: I think what was interesting about that project is it's one of the few times we weren't engaged to do contract admin but we didn't feel kind of nervous or concerned about that because we knew the contractor had such respect for architects having studied architecture and having respect for it, he'd just jump on the phone if there was ever a
2: query or if
1: it was a collaboration. Yeah, so we weren't
2: formally engaged for contract administration but we were engaged on an hourly basis to provide design advice and construction advice throughout the project. Mm. So that meant that, great, we didn't have to assess claims, (laughs) we didn't have to go through all the thousands of tax invoices, but what it did mean is that the builder and the owner could call us at any stage to try and resolve an issue. Mm. It was a renovation so inevitably you find out that there's always going to be a problem with structure or undersized members etc cetera, etc cetera, and it goes on but what it did mean is that because we were part of that process the design did evolve over the time so we originally had a, a vision and then the clients decided that they would like to spend some more money and how that level of detail then can quickly come into a project without having the full documents then and there.
1: I think it was refreshing though because there's a when you say that the clients spent more money and they decided to do things along the way, you know, that could in some instances become a real train crash in terms of the holistic strategy and design approach for the the building, but they they touched base with us around every decision. You know, we had numerous design meetings while it was under construction because they said, look, we really do want to do this part of the house now or we want to attack this or do that. And so they were really conscious of not it becoming bits and pieces of what they wanted to do and then what we'd put forward originally. So I think it was still a collaboration and the design intent was maintained, which was really refreshing because I guess it could have gone either way. And I do think that that's down to the builder saying to them regularly, let's check in with Josh and Sarah and just see what they think.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's really great when you've got that team spirit where everyone on the team knows that it's good to have another team member who can stand back and look at things, come into the detail, see what you're working on now, but then also if there's a slight change, then stand back and say, okay, does this still fit in with what you intended? Does everything still work? That's really nice.
1: Yeah, I think that advocacy is almost in, in a way for residential projects in particular If the builder is your advocate, the architect's advocate, then that's sort of the best case scenario, isn't it, really? Because we're always talking about how to educate people in what we do and quite often a builder or a contractor is the first port of call for a client. So I think if you've got contractors out there that are advocating for good design outcomes and the services that an architect offers, then I think that is the most potent form of advocacy, really.
0: Absolutely. And it must have been a really interesting project that you could come on site, you could work on things one to one, and sort of evolve things like details. Because I guess if you when you detail something, and then inevitably you come to site, like you said, Josh, and and there are some slight changes where someone might say, let's look at the detail and say, no, nah, can't be done. We're going to do something standard, or you'll have another kind of builder who'll say, this won't work, but we're thinking this. What do you guys think? Is that something that you found is? easier to achieve in Tassie and you've been working with more builders who have been working that way? I think to be able to get to that
2: point, the role of the architect needs to try and build a level of trust with the builder or the contractor going into those conversations. I feel as if if an architect or a practice can prove their understanding of construction methodologies, those conversations are a lot easier. Mm. It doesn't become, this is what I've always done, this is the way that I'll do it, you know, your drawing doesn't work, it becomes more of a process of why doesn't it work, where is the issue, let's talk about it, let's visualise it, put your timber member where it needs to go and then let's workshop it.
1: Yeah, and I think those conversations are more collaborative when it starts from a place of I can see what you're trying to do, can we talk about how to resolve this, whereas if it's just a we can't do that, (laughs) <laughs> that's, so, you know yeah. that's what exactly <laughs> i mean
2: sometimes it's purely just, conversation yeah, sometimes it's purely just the interpretation of our drawing to the builder
1: yeah
2: they can't understand how all the pieces go together when they're trying to put a junction together um and sometimes it is just that five minutes on site and you go oh no sorry like that that timber is meant to be there and then that member comes through here mm. and the, the space is created and then mm. they go, oh, oh, fantastic, great, and then you kind of walk off site and you go, you know, it's really great to work with a good builder that just yeah. hasn't already done it the way they want it. And I, think,
1: you- I think, yeah, to reiterate Josh's point, the builder probably comes at it from one of two ways and that starting point is based on the level of respect they have for you around your construction knowledge. If they think you're just a doormat in that department, then they're not going to even probably have the conversation with you. It'll just be built however they want to build it and then it'll be a conversation about redoing something rather than a phone call and a, hey, can we chat about this? Because a, I think there's a better way but I can see what you want to achieve or I can't get that material right now so we need an alternative.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that I think not that many people consider and it's really good that you brought up, you know, that what so many builders are going through at the moment with these material changes in price that we're seeing across Australia where, you know, unless people are willing to allow for a variation of, of something that is out of their control, that some builders are really, you know, getting hit hard on lump sum contracts where where the price of materials are going crazy. I mean, we love an in- an innovative
2: builder mm. a builder that comes around and says that doesn't have a problem that has the solution mm. you know I can't get LVLs for my roof okay but I've spoken to my truss manufacturer and we can do a parallel flange truss for the same size for the same spans for the same price
1: mm. happy day yes, <laughs> yes
2: can we we talk to the engineer to get it verified and and this is a great solution we're not going to lose eight weeks on site Mm. thank you you know it's always nice to work with a a builder that comes with the solution Mm. not just the problem
1: Mm.
2: and i think when a, a project's going really well, those conversations are a lot smoother, a lot mm. easier to have because everyone's moving in the right direction.
1: Yeah, there's a common goal. You feel like you're all working towards the same outcome.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's that's another thing that um, it seems like you guys are fantastic at is that you know and respect the value of a really great builder and when their skill set comes into play, like the actual timing of that, because I guess you'd hope that, an architect's skill set is going to really shine early on, before the construction starts. You don't want to just start construction and then sort of try to try to figure things out as you go. Mind
1: your arms around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. So it seems like that sort of timing is also really important, rather than you know trying to have multiple designers all thinking about the project all at once. Yeah, so in regards to that, do you ever engage builders earlier in the project? So some people I guess would use quantity surveyors because they think the most important thing is to make sure we're getting prices nailed down. Have you ever bought a builder in to that early stage to bounce ideas off them and say, Oh, this is what we're thinking about Monorezi project?
1: I suppose one scenario where we've collaborated with the builder quite early on in a residential project is when the client has approached the builder and the builder has turned around and said, You actually need an architect first speak to to lxn so so by the nature of that relationship the builder has been on board from the beginning and then we have had to set up a few boundaries around when they can and can't get involved again so we've sort of said look thank you this is fabulous great clients like genuinely fantastic clients thank you (laughs) but we'll see you in six months let us get through the briefing stage the concept design stage and then maybe we can do like a cost plan
2: the architect's knowledge should never be underestimated of the full overview of a project from first concept to completion some builders don't understand how much work in the front end needs to be achieved how many consultants are required development application processes, assessment periods, mm. spe- all those specialist consultants again, um, and then getting your building permit. And so when some of their clients approach them and you know, go, fantastic, I want to build in a year's time, let's get started. And they go, yeah, that sounds great. It can work to our timeframe, but I've got no idea how to get there. Mm. Um, so let's go and approach some architects, see who you think you can work really closely with and build a relationship with because there's going to be a whole year's worth of of relationship and trust that needs to Mm. go between an architect and a client. Mm. Um, And then we'll come along with the journey with you Mm. so we can work on pricing as we're developing up ideas Um, and maybe some of that pricing is by the builder and their subcontractors and sometimes some of that pricing is also done with a quantity surveyor plus the builder, because ultimately the quantity surveyor at a really early sketch might not understand the value of certain elements. So the price needs to be adjusted. And so that that stakeholder group or that project, early project group, needs to work really closely together because there's a lot of figures flying around trying to mould what the actual project's worth.
1: And I think also too we've just been through a process where the client's budget is is probably borderline appropriate but there's going to be some scope creep so we knew really early on that we should probably get the client because they've already got a preferred contractor so the client the contractor and ourselves around the table and say look right now let's just press pause we're going to enlist the services of a quantity surveyor get them to do a measure Then we'll check their rates against the current market and the expectations of the client in terms of some of the internal finishes and fittings. And then we'll just regroup. So I think it's about being brave enough to say we actually need to pause, let's enlist the services of an expert here at this juncture and just do almost like a health check, you know, are we comfortable with where the job's at and then we can go forward with a bit more knowledge. And I think this is all stemming from, something we've already touched on, which is the current instability in the market and the fact that 90% of our jobs are going to be cost plus. I had some conversations with contractors yesterday and three out of three said, I'm not pricing work. If you want a preferred contractor, I'll do you a cost plan at 50% construction docs and then I'll do a cost plus because I can't commit to a, a lump sum. And so I think there's going to have to be we're going to have to be far more active going forward in the way we start to build prices up for projects and manage clients' expectations around cost while there's this volatility in the market.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's also really important, like you were saying, you know, that when the builder was saying at 50% docs to do a pricing. I guess that's also a really important thing in terms of how how refined the documentation is and the design as well when it comes to the prices that get, thrown around because depending on at what point in the documentation you give your drawings to someone else to get a price, there could be something that's that's been drawn still in a really loose way. And there can be some big assumptions made <laughs> during that time. And then, in your mind, you might be thinking, "Oh no, it's going to be like this really beautifully, like detailed <laughs> thing." And that's also that can also be. Oh, who ten. is that? <laughs> that's technical <Cool>. office manager. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that I mean that can also cause some hiccups along the way. It sure it can. can.
1: I just think that it's horses for courses, right? Like, um, you can't forget that we provide a service, and architects are needed to get so many different projects out of the ground that. Yeah, there's a time and a place for the fat pen and the squiggly lines and it's, you know, it's a very small percentage of what we do.
2: Of our day job. Of
1: our day job. Um,
2: We're just delivering a concrete house now where the client is the builder.
1: It's been a great experience in that respect. (laughs) A bit bit organic.
2: (laughs) Very organic because (laughs) every detail has a very lengthy conversation. Mm. And prototyping of concrete panels and colours and aggregates was very extensive. We were really lucky that the client, we think, had full trust and faith in us.
1: I think it got to the point where he was so far down the line he couldn't walk away, so we just (laughs) kept him.
0: (laughs) Oh, That's good. But I think, yeah, it sounds like, you know, when you get to work with the builders uh, who are also your clients, then that can also help with avoiding things like the value management process that might come, come along later in the project because it sounds like they're an experienced concrete contractor or they've worked with concrete a lot so then they know very early they can just sort of look at your drawings and be like, this is the cubic metre rate or this is the these are the rates that I know that we can achieve because that can be a little bit disheartening when it comes to the later down the project and the value management process starts.
1: I think that for, for all the positives that have come through that collaboration there I, I'd be lying if I didn't say there were a few sleepless sleepless nights where I just sort of went oh my gosh I don't know if he's actually going to do what we've drawn <laughs> or what we've specified I'm not sure what's actually going to end up in this house um, and I think it, you know you sort of give as much guidance as you possibly can but then not having full transparency around the cost of things as in he's making those decisions really autonomously. Um, we had very few, if any, conversations around cost because that was something that he kept very close to himself and was very private about, which was his prerogative. But it just meant that there was a little bit of fear, I think, that I had in particular around some of the selections we were making and whether that would actually get translated into the project in the end. So for every pro, there was that con of like, oh, I wonder if that he'll actually pull that off.
0: Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the other differences between a builder and and an architect is that you've got a builder who will make very practical choices based on cost and also what they know can be built and then architects know the value of maybe a slightly different detail and you can be saying oh but the quality of light or the texture that we can achieve or all of these things are actually going to be a real pleasure for you Mm.
1: yeah how do you value that with a dollar sign
2: we were really lucky in that project where We had that many conversations that we were purely aware of his fundamental outcome of what he wanted to achieve, so much so that when parts of his building got installed or joinery got installed, he didn't even know what was being installed because, you know, he thought that he was going to have some painted plasterboard in a hallway and we ended up getting veneer panelling through and he's like I love it you know I just was so so, worried I'm so
1: glad we did that I'm like oh (laughs) (laughs) you didn't look at the drawings okay
2: you know I was so worried that I was going (laughs) to have (laughs) some painted plasterboard in a room and it's like yeah well we you know it's the role of the architect, you know. We've been listening and we've realised that we had to delete it. We now
1: know our documents were just trade-packaged and sent out yeah. without him actually looking at them. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. well, I mean, that also must be lovely when you do work with builders and you give them those elements of surprise and they say, like, oh, that's what <laughs> that's what you've been doing. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, that was it. That was a positive one. No,
2: yeah, it
0: was. Um, I think... Something you raised
2: Dan, which is always interesting and probably a really hot topic to discuss is the, the value management, the role of the architect and the builder and the level of trust. And I suppose also then is, you know, when do you need to probably keep a quantity surveyor involved through that process? Because I think through my experience with the Tier 2 contractor in value management or value engineering is that you're always trying to pull back money and something needs to suffer you know we talk about um, skinny engineers you know how much structure can we pull out of something you know let's look at the big dollars but then it can also then go down to the fittings and the carpet and, the, and so eventually quality starts to degrade potentially very quickly out of projects I think that um, we get scared when we have to start going towards the value management, value engineering because of some of the experiences and that we've had where that quality can diminish extremely quickly.
1: Without really getting the savings. Without getting the savings <laughs> and that's
2: probably where we, we do think that sometimes we're better going into those meetings with a quantity surveyor beside us. So there's somebody else to try and use their expertise about, no, I don't think you're giving us the full value back.
1: I think this is also the flip side of your experience working for contractors. You see how this is all working in the back end, like the conversations around cost and where that can be attacked Well, from speak. the contractor's point of view. So I think there's also sometimes ignorance is, is bliss in a way <laughs> and sometimes I feel like we know a little bit too much about what happens around the negotiating table from both
2: sides. Well, a builder's motivation is to construct what our drawings are and then it's profit. Yeah, and every the job and, should be profitable. And every Absolutely. business should be profitable. Yeah, yeah. But there's opportunity within value management yeah. and value engineering that, that you can create more profit because, you know, you don't need to give the whole value back. And you're, the principal contractor is typically in a strong position mm-hmm. because you're negotiating already about, value management and value engineering and they're margins. telling
1: you what those values are yeah. and what they'll give you back.
2: You don't have no. that VM V E process with all your principal contractors. You usually, you know, one is down to one or two contractors and mm. you know there's that ability for them to try and increase their margin. Mm. But let's also be honest, some of their some of prin- some principal contracted margins are quite small. Like they're starting margins yeah, small. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it comes back to the word trust. And I it guess, does. Um, and therefore, it comes back to relationships. And I suppose when you're thinking about pulling together that tender list or the builders that you want to work with to deliver a project, you pull that list together for a variety of reasons, and quite often it's to do with relationships and trust. And you know, you don't want to put your client in a position where their project is being compromised. I think also too sometimes if you know that the project is a bit touch and go. What we try and do is be really clear about a list of items that you could look at, you know, that you could value manage. And so you can be on the front foot and also already have an understanding about the values that you might get back for those. So whether, as Josh said, it's about having your quantity surveyor in those meetings or whether it's just about having some knowledge about substitution of materials already and the cost you can get, it just gives you a little bit more power back in those conversations so you don't feel like you're being railroaded.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's also the value of having you guys involved is that when a value management idea comes in, you've still got a bit of a checklist to make sure that there's gonna be a quality element still there.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. I I think at a alts
2: and ads and a and a residential scale, they're harder to assess.
1: Yeah. You
2: know, when we're talking about value management and value engineering, it's really in the commercial the larger scale projects. It's very hard to try and find the money in small alts and ads and the residential projects when there's such a small quantity of, of high priced tiles or yeah, maybe the the marble bench top is, is too expensive, but that's the one thing the client is willing to spend extra money on. So, you know, the money coming back the other way isn't is insignificant because that's what the client's dreamt of since they first approached you. So I think it is nice when, at those smaller scales, when a builder comes to you that saves you a little bit of money, because there is always that fantastic trade-off of, you know, your negative and positive variations, trying to get back to a zero if you can mm. at the at the completion of the project, so no money is going either way. And a builder that's really good and fair understands that trading process. There is quite a few builders that just don't want to trade that way. Mm but it's always please give me more. But then our role as a good architect is being able to have those hard conversations and negotiate. You know, We are Switzerland when we are administering these contracts. If we are the administrator of the contract, we are Switzerland. So we need to be really firm. Yeah. And a few contractors that we work with just don't like that approach. But it's black and white. The interpretation of that contract says this and you know, you're not going to do this element, so please give it back to us or complete what's in the contract docs and let's not have that conversation and we'll just move on. Mm.
0: Mm. I think that's the other benefits that have come from working for a builder and also being on site, working on your own projects, your own renovations as well, is that you can start to consider things and almost you can see problems before they occur for, for things like site access or certain materiality and building systems and things like that. What are some of those, the low hanging fruit that now, you know, when you come into a project that you've, you've got to consider that, you know, some people often overlook who might not have had that real practical, the practical experience that you guys have had.
2: We are documenting a project at this very moment that have these, these problems where, it's a 6 story building in the cbd we can't get a tower crane on the site and we've got limited street access and we're trying to work out how to build it mm. and we've had we've had every subcontractor that we've built relationships with have conversations about how to build this building yeah. we've had the biggest block layer in tassie in our office we've had the biggest concreter in tassie in our office how do we build this building yeah. with limited access you know and you can't I block mean, a whole street
1: yeah and i mean we were having those conversations at sketch design because fundamentally the construction methodology was going to determine whether this thing was precast panels whether we could do a modular construction out of like block work or brickwork, you know what what materials were actually available to us and that needed to be determined pre-planning approval obviously so these were construction methodology discussions that were being had when we were still on butter paper and I, I think if we didn't do that at that stage we would be going into the pricing process like tender with our eyes completely shut and we could be told anything and we'd probably just eat it up. But whereas we've had all those conversations and we weren't afraid to lean on contractors and subcontractors and say, look, can we can we workshop this? Because um, this is a really great project. We just want to make sure we can actually get it out of the ground. In a way that's feasible,
0: you know. Oh, totally. Because I think that's can be one of the last things that people especially like clients or even some I'm sure experienced developers wouldn't um, overlook it, but, you know, just the idea of getting there, <laughs> you know, physically getting there with the trucks and the, <laughs> you know, everything, it's just—it's one of those things that can seriously be overlooked so easily. Even certain materials that definitely need a crane, all of those things are so important to, to remember and also just other building systems. Some people just already have concrete in their mind or steel mm. and it's just like, oh, that can't do it.
1: <laughs> well, it means that when you're scoping the services of your structural engineer, at least you have some concept of what the construction methodology is going to be so they know what they're going to be detailing and modelling and testing. That as well is is pretty critical because that consultant team needs to be working together towards the same goal. So you need to
2: all be across those sort of decisions really early. I think what makes it easier is by the time you've, an architect has learned how to build trust with the client and a builder, that trust and relationship can then start to extend to all the other subcontractors, and so then you start to make really good relationships with some really good subcontractors. And in this instance, when we're in the city, we've had to extend key stakeholders like Tas Fire, State Growth, Hobart City Council, you know, road closures, emergency paths. You know, there's so many people to negotiate with. And
1: just neighbouring tenants. <laughs> neighbouring tenants. <laughs> Who need to keep operating.
2: And so to get a, pro- a project out of the ground, you know, like before we've even gone to, to tender, we've got a, a methodology in in our minds about how to build this now. We've got most approvals that we need that we can take a lane here and a take a lane there and block a street through, on a weekend. When you then go to a principal contractor to tender it and they say you can't build it and you've got a couple of solutions, then that makes life so much easier because an architect gets a level of respect from that principal contractor that's tendering the job straight away.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You can't build it. You know, the, the first conversation you'll have, you can't build it. Well, no, no, like we've thought about this. Oh, well, how have you thought about it? Well, you know option A, B, C, D, E, and then they start to go, oh, you know, actually, they've thought about this, they've spoken to the right people. Actually, it is a project we'll price. Yes, it Mm. is a project we think we can build. Mm. Um, Yes, it's not going to blow the budget. You know, it's not going to be double, triple the budget because of the way that we have to build it. And so, again, it's that whole architect in a traditional sense really having to educate the principal contractor at times about, You know, we're just not somebody who draws lines on a page. Yeah, I think
1: it it comes back to that comment at the start that we don't operate in a silo. Like I think if you want to be respected in the industry that you've got to be comfortable having those conversations and opening up the door and saying, okay, we've got this project, Mm. let's talk about it because... know we don't have all the answers but we know what the questions need to be
0: and i think that's that's a really good point that you make as well about showing that you've thought about things before you involve a contractor or a consultant just to say oh fix my problem that it shows that you're considerate and but that also works both ways so if you show to a builder or a contractor that you have considered these things and you're considerate of them and the position it's going to put them in when it comes to the time where a problem arises and then the builder comes to you and says, oh, we've noticed this thing, we want to solve it together, let let us, you know, can we work through
1: this? It has to be in mutual respect because it's, yeah, it can't be one-sided. You can't expect to command the respect of a contractor if you're not going to be willing to respect the knowledge that they have and can bring to the table.
2: As, as As a practice, LXN architecture loves being a contract administrator, the traditional architectural role if we have to work under a a project manager consultant we will but if we can do that role if we can do that traditional role we will always put our hand up and say yes fantastic we'll take the reins and we'll we'll move forward Mm. and we're really lucky that a lot of our clients let us do that Mm. we've not had very many projects where We've had an external project manager sitting over the top, having to report to, be mm. on their timelines, um, try and be in in between the conversations between all consultants. Or on a residential
1: scale, the client goes and just builds it with the contractor. You know that is really really rare, thank goodness, um, because I think we coach our clients right up to that point pretty intensely about what it means for us to be their buffer between those, you know, for those hard conversations about money with the builder. We sort of really coach them on that and say, look, it's just about having someone in your corner. Like yes, we're a neutral party at that time of being the contract administrator, but that means we're fair and reasonable. And so if there's something that needs to be discussed, you don't have to be at the coal face. Of that really awkward conversation or feel like you're being railroaded or you know that they're not being honest with you and so I think a lot of our clients just want that peace of mind that the project will be delivered.
2: I think residential clients don't understand at times the level of stress that a project Mm -hmm. can put on themselves and as a practice we really like to shield our clients if we're the contract administrator we will try and shield our clients from as much stress as possible and then go to them with a solution. We don't really want our clients knowing that the builder didn't turn up that day that they thought they were going to be or our client walks on site and where's the builder. Mm. We try and remove our clients from that process. Yes, we want them to come to site, but typically we'd like them to come to the same site visits as ours where the builder has been able to clean up the site, present themselves (laughs) nicely, make sure there are some subcontractors there and it looks like they're working towards a program. Make them look busy. Yep. That's right. We don't want clients sneaking in on site every day trying to do a tick box.
1: Yeah, I mean we're pretty strict. Like obviously they do sneak on site and you can't avoid that but we're pretty strict because ultimately we'd sort of say to them, look, you're just going to be disappointed. Yeah. Construction is messy and frustrating and disappointing most of the time until it's finished. Yeah. And so, you know, (laughs) to avoid all of that suffering, just stay away.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So... We try and try and do those traditional roles to achieve that outcome.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, I think I think that's a one of the areas of like you guys doing contract admin was where you guys can definitely your experience can shine on your projects because of what you've been able to do, uh, working on projects on site, working for builders, working with builders, being a real great team player. So, yeah, I think that's really great that we got to hear about uh, your amazing experiences working on your projects and being an amazing, growing, emerging practice in Tasmania. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been wonderful to talk to both of you and we look forward to seeing the projects that you do in the future. So thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan.
0: This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guests in this episode, architects Josh Crossan and Sarah Lindsay from LXN Architects. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your contribution to the architecture profession in setting a great example when working with built environment professionals. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Abby Hibbard. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice you should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.